I will take you with me. You might learn something. About soccer? Nah, mate. Not about soccer. And for fuck's sake, stop saying soccer! Welcome back to the Assistant Professor of Football. We've dropped the word ultra quite a bit on this podcast so far when we've talked about fan cultures, and this probably is the dominant and most influential both youth culture around soccer in Europe and fan culture with quite a bit of a history. And that history starts in Italy. Italy, the homeland of flags and flares and tifos and choreographies. And a lot has changed since ultras got their start in Italy in the 1970s and 80s as kind of a counterpoint to hooligan fan culture. But a lot has stayed the same as well. And we've never done an episode on Italy. So today is a start, the first one, but certainly not the last of Italian soccer and soccer culture and soccer politics and soccer history stories to tell There are many ways to go deeper into this topic. There are three books that I've linked in the show notes, as well as a more recent article from Tobias Jones, who will also be on here in the near future, that problematize and, and reframe a little bit where ultra fan culture may be going. But today, our guest is Richard Hall. This is not an Italian name. Richard is an Englishman, a posh Englishman, as he will tell you. And he has been living in Italy for quite a while, has been first part of the Ultras of Inter Milan, starting there in the late 90s, early 2000s. He now works for the club, runs the English-speaking Inter podcast. He also has a very well-run website, The Gentleman Ultra. It's also his nickname. The Gentleman Ultra is now affiliated with the Guardian Sports Network, and Richard is heard on radio stations, Sirius XM in the US, as well as TalkSport in England, an all-around knowledgeable guy and funny conversationalist about Italy, Calcio, as soccer and football is called there, and the culture that surrounds it, and also what makes it so different from the English fan culture that he grew up with. The emerging ultra-fan culture at my Austrian team of Sturm Graz in the 2000s in particular was a big part of the stadium visit for me, of away travels for me, and the kind of approach I developed to the game. So it's a bit of a time travel back for me as well, and we address plenty of contemporary questions about Italy, stadiums, and football as well. But first, as always, if you do enjoy this kind of soccer coverage and you'd like to help make it a little bit more available out there, please do leave a rating on whatever podcast platform you use. It's really, really easy to click on these stars. really helps me a lot. And there's really no much better way to spread the word on small, not platform-based podcasts like this one. So take two or three seconds if you can. Uh, it would mean a lot to me. Thank you. I know you're an intelligent and curious soccer fan. And Richard is an intelligent and curious Englishman in the Italian soccer scene, so I hope you enjoy his take on what's going on in the south of Europe, the homeland of ultras. Welcome, Richard Hall, founder and president, and according to the website, definitely not corrupt president of the Gentleman Ultra, thin run blog 
on calcio and calcio culture. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your time. I assume we're finding you in Italy right now. Uh, normally, I'm based in Milan, but I'm actually in the northwest of England this this morning. Well, this evening, should I say? Um, but yeah, normally um, I'm I knock around Milan and Florence. So yeah, it's okay. A northwestern Englishman in Italy. What's the journey? How did you how did you get to start what you are doing now? And we'll get to that in a second. We'll we'll invalid a little bit what what the gentleman ultra yeah. is. How did you get into this? How did you branch outside of the boundaries of of English football and become the kind of traveling expert you are now? It's it's, it's bizarre in some ways. Say so I'm a little bit honest with people, a little bit straightforward. So I do hope that people don't mind me saying this, but um, I'm a very, very much private school boy in England, uh, hence the name of Gentleman Ultra. When I used to travel out to Italy, everyone thinks I'm a little bit posh. I don't particularly think that, but I went to private school. And so the Gentleman Ultras sort of come from there because the boys on the Kuva Northern Inter were like, they took, they gave me that name. I didn't, I didn't give myself that name. Um, and so that's what it is. And I've been going out there for many, many, many years. In England, uh, a lot of people took to the Premier League. They were very bothered about it and uh, how it evolved, especially when you see the likes of Manchester United and the Arsenal evolve. I, I never, I never really went with that. When you're an English person in the UK, and for your listeners, um, we, I was very lucky as a, a young child to have. Um, B Sky BB, which was uh, like a um, uh, Sky Channel, and my father used to work in Milan, so we can see how it connects now. And um, he used to bring me back to, uh, into shirts, and um, he was not interested in football at all. Um, and I, I was, I obviously was, and uh, Italian ninety was huge for me. Um, it changed it. It changed everything. It's like that's changed the world of football. It changed everything. So, this is the World Cup in Italy, 1990. For those listeners who are so young that they can't remember it anymore, or whose interest in soccer is more recent, Germany, West Germany, still officially won this in a final against Argentina. Italy came in third and the stadiums, the atmosphere, the Italian culture of football was popularized in this early commercialized 1990s sense of way and it it gave the whole tournament a vibe that reached beyond what was just happening on the pitch and I was very very young at the time but I still recall it as well yeah well I'm bloody old so um so that's I'm, I'm 42 years old now and when I was I was like 10 years old when it when it happened and it, 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 English football was horrendous at that point. It was uh, bad pitches, hooliganism, everything. And Italian football is these beautiful places that when you're a ten-year-old boy, you don't you don't think you're going to go to. I'm I'm extremely privileged um, with my parents and with everything else. And so um, I was I was able to to, to do quite a lot of things. And uh, even though my parents were interested in sport at all. So private school background, which in England often means even more of a class distinction than in the US, and your parents aren't interested in sports, but they're still letting you live out your interest in football? I was very lucky. And um, 
So I started to look at Italian football from a, from from a long, long, long way away. And what's really important here is that if you can take yourself back to 1990, the pitches you got you've got to understand it. England were banned from the European football scene because of highs or because of a load of other different elements to it. And we were unfortunate. And then 1990 came around and, of course, Paul Gascoigne. I don't think you can really understand how big Paul Gascoigne is, is in European football history in England because he brought the attention to Italy. So you add here, uh, Paul Gascoigne, easily the most talented English footballer of this generation, I think, played for Lazio Rome in Italy from 92 to 95. And when he did that, When Paul Gascoigne went to Italy, he brought a TV program which was called Football Italia. And I'm privileged to have worked with the people who worked on that. And uh, But it, there's a great thing on YouTube. And for your listeners, if you ever go to when Paul Gascoigne arrived in Italy, it's an incredible thing. Le mani di Paul Gascoigne, giunte in segno di ringraziamento, il suo viso segnato dalle lacrime. E forse questa l'immagine più bella e al tempo stesso più nitida di un derby davvero brutto. Ma i fotogrammi da ricordare ci sono. Ce li ha regalati la telecamera in una domenica in cui lo spettacolo è stato nobilitato dalla fotografia di operatori attenti e sensibili. A quattro minuti dal termine arriva il colpo di Gascoigne, un colpo promesso e pubblicizzato ampiamente alla vigilia. Un gol che vale il pareggio, è il primo nel nostro campionato per il campione inglese. Un gol che manda su tutte le furie Boscov. Un gol che la Roma poteva evitare con un briciolo di accortezza. Un gol che la Lazio ha rabbiosamente inseguito negli ultimi 30 minuti. And this is during a time when uh, players from foreign countries in the big leagues are nowhere near as common as they are today. I mean, it's not even legal, right? There's a big court case in the mid-90s then. So this, this is rare. And it's also hard to imagine that England is such a football backwater in a way. it's Today, the Premier League is the number one go-to soccer league for, for interested fans, probably worldwide. It's not like that back then. And, and Gascoigne kind of opens up the wider soccer world to, to the English again and you're you're walking through the door here right so yeah so basically to, to make this very short i got sucked into it at a very young age and never left italian football my wife is chilean i'm quarter french i'm quarter italian i speak the language fluently um and yeah and and also and that's why but the biggest joke of it all is that i'm a private school english boy who went on the, with the Ultras for many, many years, and they christened me the Gentleman Ultra, and that's where we are. Yeah, I can't relate in some way. Um a little younger than you are, but still, the, the I don't have a family who's private school background or who none of them went to college, but they managed and wanted me to go to a, a private school, and so I did, and yet also um, football, soccer, and particularly fan culture, to me, was kind of a draw always out of that, that, that made private school life more complicated, um, but also more fun and less predictable, especially on the weekends. And, and for me, that's in, in Graz, uh, grew up with Sturm Graz in Austria. And for you, that's in Italy. I mean, we're 90s. That's when ultra culture spreads to Europe as well. The first ultra group in Graz is founded in 94, for example, inspired by Italy. 
the World Cup is over, Milan is riding high, Lazio is riding high, and you are becoming an Inter supporter. Why? What gives? How did you end up in the air? Curva. The biggest thing was my father wasn't interested in football. And, but he did a lot of business in Milan. So during the 1990 World Cup, um, he randomly bought me three. I said, can you get me some shirts? He said, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, my father didn't know what the... F oh, I can't swear on this. What the hell he was doing. And he, he, um, he bought me a, a German top randomly in 1990, which was absolutely ridiculous. And he also bought me... Um, an intertop in 1988 with Nicola Berti, you know, Lothar Mateus, my favourite player on the planet. So, it, we and we were very lucky to have Sky. And then after that, there was a, a, um, a show which was called uh, Football Italia with James Richardson, which I've been very lucky to, very, very lucky in my later years to present with him. Um But I never really got into the Premier League. I mean, Italy, it just took me because you, you'd watch stadiums, whether it was in Perugia, whether it's in Venezia, whether it's in Firenze, wherever it was. And um, the, the, the country, just Italy as a country, just took me, took me completely. And it's defined my life. It's defined my life. Um, I don't know why. I speak fluent Italian now. My little boy started to speak Italian. He's four years old. My my wife and me live pretty much second home in Milan. Hmm. So, the Gentleman Ultra, which is a significant fan-run blog, it's now part of Guardian Sports Network. Is well, it's your labor of love. It's your work, and it started with with a bunch of shirts, and jerseys, and um, Paul Gascoigne in the early nineties. You mentioned the Courbenord of Inter yeah. Milan. What was the first visit there? And how? What did Bosch do back then? What was the first impression you got of Italian ultraculture? And we'll get to talk about what changed until today. But what's the first most vivid memory, smell, sounds of your first visit at the Miazza? It's really hard. Uh, it was really hard to say this. And, and it's, not, it's not politically correct. But um, it was really funny because there's a number of things. Because... Um, When, I, when we first went out there, it was about, what, 2003, I think. And we'd been on the curve for a while, and it was just smoke, flares, everything else. It was amazing. It was just incredible. But the one the difference in what it made, and this sounds really weird, and it won't make – I've got so many stories about this. But, but the one that got me the biggest difference, and, and I also go back to when my wife was there as well, um, it was really weird. We were running to – My brother, yeah, my brother as well. We were on there in 2006, went into one new Segureto. And um, there's an English guy. I'm not allowed to say his name, but uh, he's very heavily influenced on there. And uh, an English guy in the terraces at Inter. He was, um, yeah, he works yeah. in Milan. Yeah. He's a black, about six foot six. He's, he's a, Beautiful human being, mm -hmm. but on that end, um, they would they would be they would racially abuse him. But in a, oh, how do you how do I even say this? It's hard to understand the culture because he'd walk on there and they'd do monkey noises, and I find it really obsessing. I really didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I 
understand it. Yeah, it's then and now, right? Just a few years ago, the, the issue with monkey noises against Romelu Lukaku then played for Inter and which Inter fans defended. Uh, by saying this is really not racist at all. I mean, it, these these jarring moments where you walk into a social and a cultural space, and the way that people communicate and mark their boundaries is so off, and and it's it's nothing you'd ever you'd ever want to proof of, but you somehow need to make sense of it because this is the kind of culture you're in now, whether as an ethnographer or whether as somebody who is there for the game. In that sense. Soccer games and the, and the social cultural environment of a stadium has led me to to decipher or to at least try to decipher a lot of social dynamics that otherwise in my private school protected background I would never have encountered. I've I've interviewed the head of the Covenod, the head of the Ultras, and he and personally said that was my friend, and it was it was this guy who was there and. I just think that Italian politics is very difficult to understand for people. But what, what I understood very quickly, very, very quickly, is that when I, when I interviewed the head of the Curve Nord, and I, again, I can't name names, that one of the things they said was, um, if you have 20,000 people, you're going to get a couple of idiots. And it's true in any walk of life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a city with two big, big, clubs that both have no clear political orientation yeah i would say he's right even though it's a, a you know it's a bit of a simple cop out as well he's also right though about it on the other end of the spectrum so the idea that ultras and the people that you see lighting flares and smoke bombs and, and waving flags are all well basically are all idiots is entirely wrong as well it's a cross-section of society both on the on the on the both political ends and also on both ends of the socio-educational spectrum, isn't it? I would assume it's the same for Inter. But these guys, so people, if if I said to you right now, ultras, you're expecting people who are what, smoking weed, drinking sambuca, going mental. They're not. They're really not. The ultras are, are being led by people who are lawyers, economists, um, teachers, very intelligent people and they have this influence and that's why when when you look at the game against Benfica the other day and you see the the presence of what Inter did and the the, the huge huge choreography that doesn't happen without intelligence it doesn't happen with um, it's a bit it's a business it's a business and when I interviewed the head of the ultras, his name again, sorry, I can't say. No, that's uh, completely he, understood. And we've had this uh, before where we, we don't want to reveal details of, especially leadership circles of, uh, of ultra can, scenes on here, of course. You, if you if you Google and uh, Richard Hall on The Guardian, you can actually see it. You can actually see the interview. We did it in a little restaurant down in Milan, so you can see it. So I'm not being too holding everything back, but uh, they're not bad people is what I'm saying. And it's just different culture. It's different society. It's different than American sports fans would probably understand. It's, it's so different. But it's different from what English football fans would understand as well. And that's what's really important because um, I think every single fact 
of the way that people look at football and sport is different in society. And I think it's really important in the fact of when you look at stuff that's um, in Italy. I mean, Italy's a young country. Germany's a young country. You know, you, you know, younger, if you look at Italy and you look at Germany, they're younger than America. So, and I know America, so this is where we get, we don't want to go there now because America's split well, between two. What's an interesting, it's an interesting point because what you're saying is these, these countries of which Americans think of old, ancient, traditional are young countries in a sense, they're very young nation states. And they became nation states out of an amalgamation of, of basically of tribes, of city rivalries, of regional rivalries. And these regional rivalries deeply shape, I think, how Italians perceive football, soccer, until today. Am I way off? I think you're 100% right. I don't think, if you look at it, if you think about the way that, um, you know, you go back to the likes, we go back to where the Medici's were, and the, the papal states were driving Europe. I mean, everyone wanted Naples. You know, it was like the key thing, and the French wanted Naples. So it's always been very different. The, the papal states were always uh, the, the, the states that would discipline, excommunicate, in a sense, uh, states that didn't work for them. And until Garibaldi came in, and, you know, we can go into really deep if you wanted to now, which we don't need to do on this podcast now. But, uh, you know, the one as deep As deep as you want to, I think my listeners don't mind a little history lesson. When you look at that to football clubs, there's a huge divide, a huge divide. And so when you look at the... Even, even within cities, the Derby della Madonnina in Milan, it's still seen as the poor versus the rich. It's almost like poor versus for, river. For our listeners, could you tell who would be the poor, who would be the rich in cliche terms? And, and Milan is supposed to be what they call them. They call them the tram drivers. Whereas the Inter is supposed to be suburban, you know, popular choice. Inter is the gentleman ultras. Yeah, <laughs> I wish. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. It is, it is, it is in that court. In that way, because it's it's because that in, when we go back into the past, the whole reason Inter involve themselves with the culture of the world is because they're called the brother. Their, their nickname is the Brothers of the World, and they're internationali. I mean, internationali means they're internationals, and they, we we can't forget that when Inter were formed. It was because the AC Milan didn't let any foreigners in. And Inter were very keen on doing that. And they have a huge Swiss influence at the time. And if you go back into history, which I'm very good at doing, you look at you look back and there's a lot of Swiss players coming in at that time. And we're going back to 1908, you know, uh, uh, and, and onwards. And so Inter is the team of the the world. That's what they're supposed to be. So, yeah, anyway, look, uh, without going too deep, um, I mean, lady hell, the semi-finals of the Champions League are going to be fun, aren't they? They will be. They will. As much as I try to keep current game day events out of there, and I do have my misgivings about the Champions League and how it works, but yes, yeah, it will be. It will be. Why? Well, how, why? No, no, the... 
Your question. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm 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 a bit more of a football historian, and I don't. You know, I prefer the old teams and the old games and everything else. But like the Metropa Cup, if we go back there and everything else. But are you not not a fan of the Champions League? Oh well, normally I, I don't answer questions on <laughs> I ask them, but yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it, it's probably just a certain level of. I mean, on the one hand, I'm I'm aware of how much increases inequality within national leagues, right? Particularly yeah. following the Austrian yeah. league uh, and the amount of money that the Champions League adds annually to the coffers of Red Bull, which is already the richest team in the league. So you see an example that that the the current European UEFA structure. Yeah can increase inequalities and not make up for them on a national level. And the other thing is probably just a certain level of boredom, right? How many times do I want to see Man City and PSG play, right? I'd rather watch Garden and Fiorentina in the Conference League. However, in part because Italian teams have made it so far this year, uh, the shakeup does make it interesting. And I'm probably going to watch the semifinal. Yeah, I probably, probably do. I'm I'm 100% with you. I mean, I mean, we can talk Austria for a second. I mean, I love the facts of like Sudtirol and Terest um, and how they're doing now. Uh, my friend who is very much um, part of the gentleman ultra, he's a football agent and he's watching his uh, youth concert, uh, youth, um, uh, what do you call it, tournament that's under 15s and it's, place between Sudtirol and Terrest. And I'm gutted I'm not there because, I mean, they, they, they're beautiful parts of the world and everything else. So, and, and also as well, I mean, I find it really hard because um, when we look at the likes of Milan, Juventus being docked 50, I, don't get me wrong, I'm going to say this out loud and I don't care, I hate Juventus. But the point being is, is that they, they <laughs> if for anyone who didn't, obviously it's a podcast, but I got a thumbs up there. But no, but the point being is, is that, yeah, I hate Juventus. And, but why do Juventus get hit harder? Why do Inter get hit harder? Why do Milan get hit harder? And Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City don't do. You know, it's, it's there's huge questions there. But it is what it is. But I think I think from the point of view where we're looking at, I think Italian football at least is getting its name back. Um, in some reasons, I don't think Juventus thing helps. It that's a whole different point of view. And I don't actually like I said. I mean, I'd be happy if Juventus got got the fifteen points, but they haven't been. But I actually agree with that they probably shouldn't in a weird way and then I you know I work for Inter so I can't really you know I've got to be careful what I say but it's one of those things but I do want to lead it on history lane uh, again okay because you've you've already suggested now it's Champions League and the the rise of new construction of stadiums right is a part of that as well slowly happening in Italy that Italy is re-emerging and and Serie A is re-emerging as a lead to be looked at, you had your first stadium visit in 2003. Between 2003 and today, a lot has happened to the Italian league and to ultra fan culture. When yeah. you compare your first impression of the Curva of Inter to what you see happening in Italian stadiums today, what's the difference? Yeah, well, let's uh, just stick on the terraces. I think the first thing is that late in the 80s, um, there was a no violence culture greed. And so that's the biggest thing. So, yeah, look, you've got the young lads who, how can I put it? 
they smoke a lot of weed, they drink Sambuca, and they're mental. And people think that if you go on the east or right side of the terrace or the Cordova Nord, that you're going to be better because they're going to be easier. It's, it's rubbish. Don't, for, for anybody who's listening to this, if you're going to go in the Cordova Nord, go in the middle because that's where the people are most sensible are because that's where you get your lawyers, your economists, the people who just want to blow out. Don't go on the sides. Trust me. Tr- please trust me. Don't go on the sides because these are the guys who are trying to please, they're trying to prove themselves. And prove themselves to what? Not a lot. Yeah, this, this would be through throughout, even in, in Austrian or Swedish and German corvers. I've observed the same phenomenon. As much as the center looks like that is the craziest it actually isn't, it's often the most organized and disciplined. I, I 100% agree with you. Yep. And I, I imagine um, with Austria, I imagine, I mean, Rapid Vienna would uh, is the first one that comes into my head. I know they've got good following and... Uh, yeah, I'm, listen, you go in the center because you're protected. You are protected, and it's the best thing to do. I mean, these guys aren't bad. They're not bad guys. It's just that, that people think that ultra culture is all about young guys having Sambuca, smoking weed, doing all these different things, but it's wrong. It's actually wrong. Yeah, okay, some of the guys out there do whatever, but in the center of those these people are economists teachers they're intelligent people they're not it's not you know they're not they're not they're not hooligans it's not like it used to be in the uk in the 90s right i mean that's where indeed the misunderstanding too comes in about ultras being the most violent part of a, a club's fan culture it is actually the, the roots of the movement are in a much more organized alternative to being a fan, uh, to being a community of fans, than the kind of let's just cause chaos and mayhem type of hooliganism that England in particular came out of the out of the 1980s with. And I mean, there's a certain level of subcultural organization to the hooligan culture, too. But ultras presented themselves as an alternative where the display and the flags and the flares and the colors and the representation is much more important, actually, than than violence on the terraces in order to represent your club and your city, right? The Italian ultras had this no violence back from the early 80s. Um, and when you look at, you know, like if you think of the West Ham casuals or the Chelsea boys or whatever, you know, from in, Italy, in England, sorry. Um, you know, it was it was chaos. It was absolutely fucking. Oh, sorry, I'm not swearing this. It was horrendously chaos. I mean, Margaret Thatcher, our prime minister at the time, was basically saying, "We're going to pull you out of the World Cup. One mistake, yes." Um, I'm really trying hard not to swear. <laughs> One mistake, and you're out of the World Cup. And it was like that was how bad it was. That was how bad it was. With 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 the Italian elections, it's very different because they came to a point in the um, late eighties. There was the no violence pact, and it's pretty much stuck there. To be fair, and I've been on different. Okay, so I, I can tell you that I've been on Lazio's Corva, Milan, Inter, Napoli, Fiorentina, Pisa, Como. God, so many. Just can't. Uh, never had any issues. It's safe. It's so safe now. It's not like it used to be. I mean, people read 
books like Tim Parks, Season of Verona. They read about ultra trains. They read about people kicking off all the time. It's not, it's not like that anymore. Or the conflict on the highway most recently um, <clears throat> between Napoli and Roma. But when you say it's it's safe, now there's there's a lot that has happened in Italy to make things safer and that may have its upsides, but it also has its downsides. Is even ultrafane culture in Italy, is it too safe? Too sanitized now? Too domesticated? Is the is the wild edge of the 90s and the 2000s, is that is that gone? And do you miss that at all? I, I, no, I, this is really, that's an exceptionally good question, but I don't I disagree because I would say that the thing is, when you're in England, it feels like every stadium's been built out of Ikea. It's just numb. I mean, I swear. Uh, well, I think you, your swearing ban is actually self-imposed. I didn't tell you to not swear. So, no, you know, I, no, I never said that. No, no, no. Um, it's, it's bloody boring. It's football in England is boring. That I always notice between ultra fan cultures and English fan cultures, the the diversity of chants, the ultra model of chanting the whole game through, almost independent of what the game is going, has produced a large array of different chants and melodies. Whereas English chants tend to stick to lesser that often follow the game, and they're often creative, and they're not led by one capo but by the crowd. But there's there's less of them, right? There's less less diversity of what can be sung in a in a football stadium in England. You, I don't really want to re, re, retweet or say too much about chance, but it's they're still allowed to have emotion. They're still allowed to be themselves. And yeah, some of it's wrong. Some of it's not right. And I get that. I do. Well, you're allowed to stand. That alone, I mean, the introduction of the all-seater stadium in England itself is something that did tremendous damage to the atmosphere in English stadiums. And and it's a reaction to catastrophe, right? I get it. It's a reaction to Hillsborough and, and, and all that. But the stadium atmosphere in England has changed dramatically since the days that we first got in touch with, with soccer. I hate English football. Mm. Um, when I, because it's too sanitized. When I was in Italy two weeks ago, um, against Inter versus Monza, unfortunately, Inter lost one nil. Um, I didn't sit down for the whole game. You mentioned sanitization of English football. Yeah. Um, and I already asked you a little bit: is is Italian ultra life too safe now? You said no, but there was a government crackdown there, wasn't there? Like ten years ago or some? I mean, did, did not no. the government intervene at some point, uh, especially when it comes to away travel? What was the situation there, and how did it affect fan culture? You think? I'm going to make this as quick as quick as I can put it. Uh, in the 80s, they used to have Italian um, trains, basically that would take the entire city. Let's take Livorno, for instance. And it'd be a very communist red sort of uh, uh, <laughs> It's a very politicized fan culture, Livorno is to this day. Yeah. Hugely, hugely. Like even now they're still politicized. I mean, it's still a massive but yeah, so what they used to have is these away trains 
And in the 80s, the one thing that happened, it was as bad as English culture. But it stops because um, they started to have no violence pact. But there is very, there is very little violence in Italy. There is very little violence. I mean, the emphasis is more about the fact of uh, teams being close to each other rather than the fact that there is teams that are outright going to fight each other. So, for instance, uh, Derby de la Mole, uh with Torino and Torino and um, Juventus. I'd be really impressed if you could find somewhere they kicked off. The one, the one that's a hard one, Lazio Roma, is difficult. But even then, I mean, we're talking five, six, seven years where there's been any trouble. So I think Italian football is um, has kept its passion but hasn't descended into, you know, the sort of 1980s violence that we saw in England. The Sicilian derby between Catania and Palermo in 2006 or 2007 is a bit of an inflection point here because a policeman does get killed there in the riots and now away travelers have to carry a little card with them on away games how does that look like how did that system come into being okay so this is a bit difficult because um after and i just mentioned catania in 2006 and when the policeman got killed it all changed there so you were um I mean, I don't have to do this because I work for Inter and Fiorentina, so I get free tickets. So, um, But I said to a lot of my friends there, so basically you can buy a card, it's like an away card. I can't remember the name of it. It's to, to, Terra something, I can't remember it's, it. Right. Tessera. Tessera de Difosi. Yeah, grazie. Yeah. Ciao. Um, and uh, you need to have that. If you don't have that, you can't get a ticket away. And it's like what I also would say for anyone listening to this podcast as well, even if you have a, uh, if you go and visit a football team like uh, Inter, Fiorentina, Galliari, Bologna, whatever, 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 whatever it is, don't let you forget your passport because that's the worst thing because you have to take your passport. And the Italian authorities are really, really keen on this and they really mean business and you will not gain the stadium. So so what is it supposed to prevent? Is it supposed to personalize the fans that are in the stadium so police know exactly which name is where? Yeah. What is it supposed to do? It's, it's basically so that when they scan the uh, passports, they they know who you are. It's There's no more than that because what we've... Unfortunately, experienced um, is it look. Italy's a very strange, strange country, and so whilst if so, if one of your listeners was going to go to Bologna, for instance, I don't know why I've chosen Bologna, but why is an Austrian a place there, and why not? <laughs> um, if you scan your passport, you can get in, but randomly in Italy, you can get in there with like flares flags everything so it's really messed up it doesn't make any sense but it's Sicily so it doesn't make any sense and I always I always I always return to this um this the, the quote for anyone who doesn't understand Italy is that um if you ever watched a film of Sophia Lorenin when she says why the hell do you need to understand me I'm Italian and I just always think that 
every single time. So for me, when I turn up at the stadium, yeah, I'm an English guy. So I'm, yeah, I'm fluent in Italian, whatever. And I have to scan my passport. But um, other guys get in with flares, flags, huge banners, everything else. Just Italy is Italy. Don't ask questions and understand it. <laughs> well, I was going to ask too how, how much of this is a picture of the country. The I would say illusion, but the the idea of order is there, but under that surface, it's not consistent and chaotic and creative and vibrant. And in many ways, Italian football strikes me to be that as well. Yeah, I think you've just, you've very intelligently hit that on the nail. same time in that creative chaos there's a tremendous potential for organization and it's all from the bottom up it's all grassroots right like i'm thinking of the choreography of the inter curva uh in the game against benfica lisbon uh, champions league game just a while ago uh, how many hours of work by teachers and lawyers and sabuku drinkers is going into a choreography like that that then gets displayed at a soccer game for a couple of minutes what would you say It's hours and hours. And when I interviewed um, whose name, you can see on The Guardian, I actually do put his name on there so you can see it. But it's massive. It's it's huge. I mean, we're talking like 12 hours uh, a day. And yeah, I mean, it's just, I, do, I don't really have anything to say about it other than the fact of, um, okay, I'll tell you one, I'll tell you a good story. Tell you a good story before we call it a day. I was in, so I was, I was very fortunate to interview Giuseppe Bergami, you know, the old defender for, um, and I interviewed him in San Siro and I was very lucky also to um, interview um, Giuseppe Corso, who was in uh, the old Grande Inter squad, you know, the Grande Inter squad that beat everybody. A big Benfica in the past and everything. So, and I was really worried because I was I was absolutely literally, and I'm going to swear now for once. I was shitting my pants because I was like, oh my god, I've got to meet the head of the ultras, and I was really rushing these interviews. Anyway, so my English friend who will remain nameless, um, we we went into this restaurant, and he he went into this restaurant. And he spoke to the guy. And the entire restaurant, he's like some kind of like a mafia. The entire restaurant just buggered off. And I was like, what? And he kicked everyone out of the restaurant. And I was like, I'm just like in a different world, especially being an Inter fan. I'm just like, what the, the hell's going on? And he talked to me and he said to me, he goes, Most of the guys here, you guys, they're really good guys. You know, like I said to you before, teachers, economists, lawyers, stockbrokers. He goes, what do you do for a job? And I was like, I'm in corporate sales. And he's like, exactly. 
He goes, but we need to have a bit of, you know, something to let us go. When I think people think that ultras are hooligans, but you, when you looked at what you saw the other night, when Inter did their choreography, I am Inter, fight for us. Half a stadium doing that. That doesn't get put together by hooligans and idiots on some baker and weed. That gets put together by intelligent people. And from what I've ever known of Inter and any club I've talked about with ultras in the past, I think they're intelligent people. So, Serbi. At what point does what happens on the pitch not not matter, but matter less than perhaps what happens in the stands as well? You see what I'm saying? So when, when the rivalry between fan groups or who has the better choreography or what is happening in our group and in our dynamic, when that becomes so important, is there a point at which uh, the game itself kind of moves to the background? Um, yeah, massively. I think the biggest thing I can say is 2015 um, when I was there um, for the Derby de la Madonina, which is the Milan Derby for anyone to know. And... Um, the light show that Inter did was massive. I think it means more than, I think it means more when the teams are poor. Um, and this is, by the way, this is pyrotechnic. This is not like strobes lights oh, put on by the club, right? So we're talking the real deal here. Yeah. No, real deal. Real deal. No, no, no shit from, you know, no plastic flags or anything. This is properly on it. And I think it means more than, I think it does, um, because it shows that the club, care the fans care and yeah i mean i've been to a lot of derbies and that was my favorite because it was nil nil it's 2015 none of the clubs are qualifying for the champions league and what happened with the choreography made the clubs relevant again because it made it show that we might be down we are down it's really difficult to explain unless you've been to San Siro and you've seen it when it happens I just wish I could share this I wish I could share this with you right now well uh, we, I will just put the put a video or a picture in the show notes I yeah think we should do that I, so yeah yeah maybe we should and I just I don't know I don't know and so I have as much respect for Milan as I have for Inter always like I effing hate Juventus but when I see those teams and when I see Milan and interplay, it's just like, wow. It's just a different level. And I would say to any of your listeners, I mean, if you're going to go to a game, these are Milan derby because it's a friendly derby almost. It's almost like we all love each other. You know, it's like when I talked about the Lazio game. You know, there's, yeah, there's some derbies that are nasty. Inter Juve is nasty. But Inter versus Milan isn't it's massive, but it's not hatred. It's an unusual um, city derby uh, in in that way. Maybe not so much for Italy, but for the rest of Europe as well. Yeah, I've sensed that too. It, it is it is um, difficult to compare it really with anything else because, like you know, with like um, Man City versus Manchester United, obviously you've got a city rivalry. Arsenal, Man City, it's not a rivalry. No, well, those are not really, no, that wouldn't be a good, good parallel, no. There's nothing, that's, 
like you could say Manchester United versus Arsenal there's quite a lot of hatred there Marseille versus Nice there's a lot of hatred there yeah but I, I just don't think that like Bilbao oh god Bilbao and Sociedad no no <laughs> Even the Roman, uh, even the Roma derby, um, Lazio, the room, Lazio Roma is has more punch. In, in that, is, that is so much hatred. Yeah, there's not. It's not that. You know, when you watch a Milan derby, it's um, it's pigeoning. It's uh, people are just there to try and show off. No, I will give you that. Um, the 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 Roma Lazio Davide Capitale is absolutely horrific. I wouldn't. I don't. I wouldn't. Okay. I would take my son to the Davide della Maddalena. I will not fucking take my son to the Davide della Capitale because it's it's messed up. One last question about soccer in Milan. I need to ask you while you're on the stadium. Uh, Giuseppe Meazza or also San Zero in which both clubs play a historic iconic a temple of of European football really is supposed to be demolished has been supposed to be demolished a couple of times already but plans are in the works how much we'll miss of the heart of, of football in Milan if that really happens I wrote, I wrote an article you probably won't find on this Probably a bit tricky to find line, but um, I wrote an article how I'd devastate that people if it went. But I find it really easy. This is an easy question, actually, because at the end of the day, um, I'm very much backed by Italian bureaucracy. So, um, yeah, look, it's not going anywhere. I think if anyone is a really big fan of the stadium, I can sit on my morals here and tell you right now that that stadium will be here in five years' time. Because oh, don't get me wrong, it's shit. The bars are awful. Sports are pathetic. The Wi-Fi doesn't even exist. It's a shithole. Um, it's not been updated since 1990. But the one thing is that I am very proud in the fact that Italian bureaucracy will not change that stadium because Italian bureaucracy is so shit. And yes, we've heard the things about the Inter want to improve it and they want to uh, upgrade it. Uh, and Milan wants to do a new stadium in the centre of the city. But let's be honest, look, we've heard these rumours for... thing is, we actually did a series on our website about the jokes of football. <laughs> Stay, stages have been updated. Look, Juventus did it. Well well done. Sassuolo have done it. Well done. And the only other team who've done it is Udinese. But when you think that Siena have tried to do this, when you think that Fiorentina have tried it six, seven times, Milan have tried it six, seven times, yep. Roma have five times, Lazio have tried it three. So for, for those of us who are nostalgic, uh, there's hope Italian bureaucracy is inefficient enough to... Keep the famous stadium intact in Milan. I think, I completely agree. Yeah. All right. 
Well, the Gentleman Ultra is uh, the website that is the outcome of your your journey with Italian soccer. It's very much alive and kicking, and it's not just you. It's a team of people. Where would you point listeners who have gotten the appeal of Italian football and who want to branch out beyond the Premier League? Where should they go and visit you? And and what would you say is your your mission? My personal Twitter is at Richwall1980. It shows how old I am. Uh, in from American contacts where for Sirius XFM for UK I'm on the radio as well with um, TalkSport and um, yeah I I work for Inter the official Inter podcast in English other than that um, yeah just at Jetson Ultra simple as that just type in Twitter you'll find it and uh, yeah and what you just said is very astute because we've got some fantastic, fantastic writers on there. Emmett Gates, who writes for Forbes. Um, you, we've got Dr. Henry Bell. I mean, the fact that I even called him Dr. Henry Bell is amazing. David uh, Farini, who's a Serie uh, commentator. We've got a hell of a team. We've got about 20 of us now. So, yeah, it's 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 really good. We got, and we're, we're, we're really nostalgic. So we go slossing back into the early 90s. Um, I'm sure most of your listeners won't even have been born at the time we've been writing. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm not so sure about that after seeing some recent data about the age groups that listen to this podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, don't don't be certain about this. And uh-huh. even the young ones seem to be historically interested. Otherwise, they wouldn't be listening here. Jack, can I just say, I've absolutely bloody loved this tonight. And uh, I just have um, a lot of respect for you. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to invest in us. And so thank you so much. Well, thank you for taking the time and sharing it with us and for taking us, at least in our minds and dreams, into the Curvas of Italy. Thank you, Richard. We did it eventually. It took it took a few it took a few uh, messages to do this, but we did it eventually. And so grazie, grazie, ciao, amico, mille grazie. And if you listened all the way to now, I have an exciting preview, I think. Um, I will be in England and in Sweden in May. And we'll be recording for two episodes there. I'll be visiting Clapton Community Football Club and then Degafors uh, in Sweden. Both outspokenly political football clubs. So continue that theme a little bit. 
and take a look right there and then at what these clubs are doing and what they mean for their community. The episodes will probably be out in June and more regular ones from here, from the Midwest, from Indiana. Before then, be well. Será